Let's uh, have a word of prayer. Gracious God, on, on this gorgeous day, we give you thanks for sunshine, for grass, for leaves, for birds chirping, for dogs walking in the neighborhood and their masters that have them tethered. We give thanks for the gift of life and for your steadfast commitment to us to nourish, protect, care for, and even transform that life. In your name we pray, amen. Noah's Ark. It's such a, it's such a cute story, isn't it? Animals of every species, two by two, marching into the ark and marching out. And in between, it's sort of like this big floating zoo. And of course, this story, uh, courtesy of our culture and how we take stories and sort of package them uh, for, for Sunday school and homogenize them to make them seem um, so nice and so, dare I say again, cute. Be that as it may, for anyone who's listening a little more carefully to this story as it's read, <coughs> and we all know the story, you have to admit, it's also a little dark. Hmm? There was a pastor who once did a children's sermon on Noah's Ark, true story. She called the children to the front of the sanctuary and asked them to use their imaginations in thinking about this story. <laughs> Be careful <laughs> with that one. What do you see, kids? What do you smell? What do you hear? One child answered, I hear the people in the water outside the ark screaming for help. Yeah. yeah, a little nervous laughter is okay. Um, not what the pastor was, was looking for, but uh, so true, huh, when we pay attention to this story. And now you know why we don't have a children's message for today. This story may end on a positive note. It most certainly uh, does. It's hopeful. But there is that part about the flood that almost wipes out all life on Earth. So part of uh, approaching uh, this story the right way means asking questions. And so I'm just going to throw it open to see what questions you might have about this story. Just anything that comes to mind as you... You're kind of playing this out, and I know we, we skipped the middle part of the story, but you saw that big gap, but you, you know the story. And uh, Sinead reminded you of some of the terminology. And Anybody? Yeah. Was this part of God's plan all along, or is God, uh, in real time, improvising, responding to what is before. God, great, great question. People would have different answers about that. Anybody else? Yeah, Dave. Is this an
Is this is this an is this an allegory? Forty days and forty nights—a metaphor forever, and the an allegory. It's a it's a story that's told in many cultures. The the flood story and what's the significance there, and uh, we'll we'll touch on some of those themes. Any other uh, questions that you have? Just just arise out of the story, uh, Sinead. Yes, isn't that how? In particular, how did how did you feed? all of the predators without using the other animals to, to feed. How did that work? How did you keep them apart? I mean, this is not a tested, carefully constructed zoo, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're a scientist, aren't you? How did you get 2.6 million? That's how many species exist on the Earth that you can see. And so that's, that's a big... By my way of thinking, that boat wasn't quite big enough to accommodate that. But yeah, you start asking these questions. Like, Wait a minute, how did how did that work? Oh uh, wow! And any others that, that come to mind? Uh, yeah, Trish. <laughs> Clean up. Hello. How did you possibly? Uh, yeah. It was it was a well-designed ship, well ship with a easy drain and flush or something. So, all kinds of questions. Eric, how big's a cubit? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure about that. I know it was a very large. Yeah, Ruth. Oh, boy. There's the quote. Somebody had to ask that question. What is a loving God doing this for? What is, is going on? So, you, you've asked... You've asked great questions here, um, including what was God thinking? Isn't this a little, isn't this a little dark for a, a loving God? What do we learn about God in this story? Um, yeah, how did Noah get all all the animals on board, and how did they not all, all eat each other? Um, why did God decide to never do this again? That was repeated. If in case you missed it, that was repeated over and over again in the final. Was God repenting? Did God sin? And of course, there, Dave raised the question of allegory. Um, is it an allegory or is it more than that? Did, did this really happen? Was this history? You ever wondered that? Here, here's a vote for history. Let's, uh, let's start with the history. Let's start with the history question. Archaeology tells us that there actually isn't evidence of a global-wide flood at any point in human history or an ancient ark that proves it up on a high mountain somewhere in Asia. It's likely, though, that when this story was first told, it was partly based on the experience of a flood in Mesopotamia, more of a localized flood, the Tigris or Euphrates overflows. Everybody. Uh, in any part of the world has experience with floods. So um, it perhaps reflects a real experience in some way, but not anywhere near how it's described in Genesis, probably if we're speaking historically, where every mountaintop in the world is covered 
with water. That would include Mount Everest weighing in at 29,000 feet. That's a big flood, huh? Now, some folks might be thinking at this point, oh great, the pastor doesn't even believe this stuff. How are we supposed to believe it if the pastor doesn't? Uh, but you see, this is a crucial point. I do believe it. That is, I believe what it teaches us about God. It's just that in the Bible, truth comes in different packages and ways. Sometimes truth in the Bible is conveyed through historical events, like Jesus' life and crucifixion, which all historians believe indeed happened. And it's important that it did happen, that it's history. But many parts of the Bible are probably non-historical stories. And clearly, there's poetry, and there's liturgies. Now, just because something is not history or science doesn't mean it's not true. The story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is thought by biblical scholars to not be historical, but it is true. It's true, we believe, because it teaches us something that is important and true about our relationship with God. It's a powerful, true story. The first chapter of Genesis, you know, on the first day and the second day, and let there be light and separate the waters, is probably not very scientifically accurate about how the world was created, but its basic point is not science anyway, but theology, namely, that before there was anything else, there was God who created the heavens and the earth. And that point, a God prior to all the stuff we see around us, had never been made until that point in history, that God preceded everything. It's a theological point. So what does this story of Noah's Ark tell us about God and about us? We've got to get to that question, or Ruth will not let us off the hook. She'll not let until we address that. Okay, this story begins with a, a sober assessment of the human race. Did you, did you pick that up? <laughs> We're not very nice. We are not very nice. It says, the wickedness of humankind was great. Uh, in, in a word, their thoughts and their hearts were really messed up. My translation. As a result, the earth and all flesh, interestingly, was corrupt and violent. Yikes, this is pretty bad. Not just humans are corrupt, but, but the earth. What does that mean? Well, there's an undeniable totality here, as though the folly of human beings somehow affected all living things and all earth. Can you imagine? Do we have any analogies to that today? A modern application, perhaps? Well, when we pollute or ravage the countryside without concern for the life there, there are serious implications for all life. Our decisions with what we do with the land and what we put in the air and streams and oceans has huge implications for all the earth. I mean, just look at how uh, the climate is changing all over the earth largely because of human activity, scientists tell us. Our violence and wickedness corrupts the earth because all life is interconnected. And they were on to this in, in this story of Noah's Ark. Think of what we learn in the story of the Garden of Eden. Humans were created 
For what purpose? Anybody remember? I've used this phrase before, and it was used before me by the writer of Genesis. We were created in order to, to, what's that? Caretakers, to till and keep the earth, which is, which is caretaker. Till and keep the earth, to be stewards of the earth. We are deputized by God to protect and nourish life on this planet. Well, apparently we've been falling down in this regard for a long time. Not only were the people then not loving each other, um, uh, and us today as well, but we're also not loving the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and our fellow mammals on land. This is a long story. And I don't have to tell you how much animals are a big part of this story. That's kind of what Noah's Ark is all about, right? What does that tell us? how much God values all of the animals. Isn't that obvious? I mean, sure, you've got Noah and his family who are spared from the flood, but you also have pairs of every species on Earth in this story, all 2.6 million species and counting, because we're still learning. That means, uh, if I'm doing my math correctly, there were way more animals on the ark than humans that were a part of God's rescue plan. Somehow our fate as humans and the fates of our fellow animals are hugely intertwined. In fact, so intertwined are we created being beings that God decides to blot out humans and all living things from the earth. It is here the story gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. Here we go, Ruth. We learn that God is sorry that he made humankind and even all living things. It grieves God. But here are some important things to observe about this passage. This sounds like it's all about God's judgment on humankind. And yet scholars have pointed out something really, really interesting. The same Hebrew word that is used to describe the corruption that human beings bring upon the earth, the moral ruin of people, is also the same word used to describe the destruction that results from the flooding of the earth. So there's a connection here in this story between the immoral flood that humans bring with the flood of water that follows. The destruction of the earth is the direct result of the violence and corruption of human beings that fills the earth long before the flood, cover, uh, flood waters covered it. In other words, as a modern saying puts it, we are punished not so much for our sins as by our sins. Do you get the difference? Judgment's built right into creation itself. There are consequences for our behavior, no? If someone drinks too much on a regular basis, God doesn't have to punish that person. Headaches, broken relationships, and cirrhosis of the liver will be judgment enough. Those are the consequences. So it's not just that God gets mad and punishes someone, but that corruption leads 
to corruption. Isn't that how we experience life? That said, in our story, God, it, it says, God does wish to blot out human beings. And while he grieves, while he grieves and is filled with sorrow, this is a very personal portrait of God here, um, God does something remarkable. Did you catch it? He hedges on his judgment and his intent. We know this because it says that God is impressed with this one guy called Noah that he's observed. And so God gets an idea. Maybe this doesn't have to be the end of life on earth. Build an ark, Noah, he says. Ride it out during the flood, and while you're at it, put male and female pairs of all animals in that ark. Are we clear? Why? To give creation a new start after the flood. Remarkable depiction of God here. God improvises, builds in a way out of total devastation. God essentially changes his mind. <laughs> then, after the flood devastates every other living thing that is not in the ark, the waters start to recede. Plants start growing again. Then God sends a rainbow in the sky. And with it, a message. It's a visual sign of his promise. Never again. Never again, says God. Will I destroy the earth with a flood? The rainbow is a sign of my promise to you. Did God repent? You be the judge. So not only did God spare Noah and the animals and kind of reboot things, now God appears to repent of his actions. What is going on here in this story? Well, is it because people learned their lesson, they changed their ways, and Noah is now showing them the way? And then, of course, God doesn't have to do the flood thing again because people got it right. Is that what happened? We no, we quickly learn in Genesis that God makes this promise not because humanity has changed. Immediately before and immediately after the flood, God expresses the same exact sentiment. Human thoughts and hearts are inclined to do what is wrong. Humanity has not changed in this story. Despite what humanity just went through in the flood, it's rather traumatic. They will still bring corruption on the earth. The rest of the Old Testament bears this out. Uh, the Jews following this are not faithful. They fail to take care of each other, to worship God. They neglect the poor and the marginalized. In the movie uh, Noah, did anybody see Noah with uh, starring Russell Crowe as Noah? It's, oh my goodness. Noah, Janelle, all right. Um, I do recommend it. It's a thoughtful, uh, provoking, uh, thought-provoking movie. They really get this one scene right. There's a scene where Noah is struggling with why God chose him and his family to survive. And so he asks in the movie, am I really any better than the people who are drowning? I am not. 
why am I deserving of this responsibility to rebuild and replant? So in truth, human beings are not changed by the flood. Who changes? God. God decides in this unfolding story we call the Bible, at this point, I'm all in with creation, for better or for worse, as compromised and messy as it all is. God decides from that point on to commit God's self to this broken, corrupt, and sinful world. And so from there on, we learn the story of God choosing leaders and prophets and kings and even very marginal people that we wouldn't expect that God would use to remind other people of their responsibility and of God's goodness. God will send plagues to free them from slavery. God will give them manna in the wilderness. God will give them commandments to guide them. But God will never, ever give up on them. There won't be another flood. God is in the trenches working it out with us. And of course, uh, those people in this, this story, they are indeed us. The story we call the Bible is the story of God's faithfulness to his people and to us. To quote one of my favorite verses, and this is, this is how the flood story in Noah's Ark ends. Not these words exactly, but this is the sentiment. For the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God's mercy won out over God's wrath. Eventually, God in Christ will choose to wade into the troubled waters of this world. And then God will change some more. And so then will we. Amen.